Philippians, and I say we loosely because it's really only been me so far. Socrates once asked, how can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? Maybe you don't appreciate philosophy like I do, but his point is, as long as we are following something or somebody, we aren't, in the purest sense, free. If you follow Buddha, for example, you're not free, you follow Buddha. But I think if you asked around, a lot of people would want to say, I don't follow anyone, I do what I want. I do whatever I want. And the, the truth behind that is what Socrates was saying, is how can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? That's not really freedom because you're controlled by your pleasures. You're controlled by what you want, your desires. We're all controlled by something. There isn't real freedom in the pure, the purest sense of freedom would be that nothing, nothing influences me. I literally, I'm, I'm completely neutral. Now the Buddhists have a good way of understanding that. In fact, that's their goal. In Buddhism, the goal is to not want anything, is to be completely desire free. And they call that nirvana. I call that clinical depression. When you just don't want anything and nothing makes you happy. There's always something to pursue. What tells you? What tells you what to pursue? What tells you what motivates you? What tells you what matters and what matters most in your life? There's always something. You're not just free. Biblically, Jesus offers us forgiveness and freedom, but it's freedom in Christ. It's not freedom full stop. It's freedom from your wants, which are sinful, and freedom for whatever Jesus wants, which are righteous. About that, here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. He wrote, Thank God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, we're not freed from being slaves to sin to being just free. We're freed from sin so that we can become slaves to righteousness. So the question is, do we process through the things that happen to us or the things that we go through according to our pleasures and what we want and our desires and what makes us happy and what we prefer? Or do we process through the things that happen in life according to what's good for Jesus and what Jesus wants? This morning, we're going to look at how that plays out in Paul's life a little bit. As a reminder, he's in jail. Paul gets thrown in jail a lot. He gets beat up a lot, too. The man's been shipwrecked. Who wants to be a missionary? Yeah. So listen. He's in jail. He's awaiting trial for having caused a riot. He could be sentenced to death for this. And he's writing a letter to his friends in Philippi. He's got actually a pretty sunny attitude about it. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. If you use the Bibles that are under the chairs, it's on page 980. 
Last week, we talked about Paul's intense love for the Christians in Philippi and how he encouraged them to grow in love and in knowledge and in discernment so that they could be pure and blameless before Jesus one day. Let's pick up where we left off. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, if you found out that I was thrown in prison, what would be your first thought? What would be your first thought? What'd you do? You've got no faith. Okay, your very quick second thought would be, what are we going to do on Sunday, right? (laughs) What did he do? Oh my gosh. Did you hear Pastor Aaron got thrown in prison? Well, what did he do? I don't know. What are we going to do on Sunday? I don't know. Someone call Robert. (laughs) Um, And I think for Paul, it's similar, right? He knows that the Philippians are probably worried because they heard that he's in prison. They're worried about how his ministry is going because he's locked up. So he says something like, actually, being in prison has been great for the gospel. The gospel is being shared throughout all the, the guards, and the other Christians around here are now more confident to speak about it boldly. Why? Because Jesus is in the air, right? Jesus is the water cooler talk. Everyone's talking about Jesus because Paul's imprisonment is a bit of a spectacle. There was a riot, and some guy got arrested for the riot, and now everyone's talking about it. And he's going through this trial. Think about like TMZ or some tabloid. And everyone's talking about the riot and what happened and the trial. And, the, and talking about Jesus is something that's happening in the culture. And so Paul says, look, I know that it's, I know that I'm locked up. Believe me, I know I'm locked up. But guess what? It's actually been good. And all the guards now know and all of, the, all of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Everyone's talking about it. And so we can talk about Jesus really boldly. Have you ever noticed that when you're trying to share the gospel, or if you have the desire to share uh, Jesus with somebody, and you think there's never a right time. <laughs> there, it's never appropriate. There's never a, you know, you were talking about pizza. And then like, speaking of pizza, I love Jesus. And sometimes my church has pizza and you should come to church one time. It just never feels appropriate, right? But in Paul's case, he's saying, actually, Jesus has done something by throwing me in prison that has made it totally appropriate to talk about Jesus. How amazing is that? Prison has been great for the gospel. As I was reading this, part of me was thinking about how optimistic Paul is, and it was sort of bothering me (laughs) because I'm not that optimistic. You know, some people, they say that uh, you either see the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. 
Well, Paul's not just seeing the glass as half full. He's actually down here at the bottom where he's like, actually, the glass is completely full. It's just not all full of water. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul is actually looking at his situation. He's going like, yeah, I'm not looking on the bright side. I'm not saying like, well, at least I've got half a glass of water. He's looking at it and he's going, well, half of it's water and half of it's air. But really, my situation is completely full. So it's not optimism. Paul isn't caring about his pleasures or what's good for him. He's not saying, well, at least I have a, I have, I have a cell to myself. You know what I mean? That would be an optimist. An optimist would be, get thrown in jail and go, well, at least I'm not dead yet, or at least I have you know, a cell, or at least you know, I have indoor plumbing. They didn't have that either. Okay, gross. Um, um, anyway, it's not optimism. What it is, is he's seeing it with Jesus' eyes, so it's actually discernment. He's looking at his situations with the eyes of Jesus, and that's called discernment, which comes from Christ. And it was what Paul just got done telling, telling them that they should have, that they should abound in love and knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what is excellent, so that they can see the great things that are happening. And that's how Paul is seeing the great things that are happening for the gospel while he's in this no plumbing, dark, dingy prison in Rome. Paul's mission is to spread the gospel to the non-Jews. Prison wasn't part of his strategy for doing that, but it turns out it helped him accomplish his mission. So he's being encouraged by that. Now, if, think if we're being honest, if you wanna, went on a missions trip and you got thrown into some dark dungeon, no plumbing, and they, you're awaiting trial, and someone allows you to write a letter back to your best friends at Monterey Baptist Church, would your letter be encouraging, <laughs> right? Would you be talking about, well, at least, you know, I see the gospel going out everywhere, and, I, and I, you know, I'm excited for what's going to happen because of this, or would you be, oh my gosh, I can't believe my situation, and it would be all about you and sort of what you're going through. I think we all need to get better at seeing what God is doing rather than focusing on the problems in your life, in the church, in the world, to be able to look at and see what is God doing rather than what, is, what are we missing. What is God doing and how is God being glorified by this? But that takes discernment because it's about seeing not just what, you know, on the bright side, but seeing with the eyes of Christ. It's not me. So he just mentioned that people have become bolder in sharing the gospel because it's out, it's out and about. So he's locked up, he's confined, but now he knows that people are bolder in sharing the gospel. Let's continue. This is verse 15. Indeed, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Almost 2,000 years ago, Paul was noticing that some people, while he was locked up, were preaching Jesus out of goodwill and love, while others were preaching out of envy, rivalry, you could call that competition, and selfish ambition. No worries. No, don't worry about it. Let's talk about selfish ambition for a second. Have you noticed that people preach Christ out of selfish ambition today? Have you noticed that? Have you turned on TV? So a couple weeks ago when I wasn't here, we were in California. We actually didn't go to church. Uh, Aiden got sick the night before, and so we stayed home. And do you know what happens if you turn on the TV Sunday morning? Oh my gosh, there's so many people that you can listen to, uh, uh, preachers and services and, and things like that. There's so much stuff that's going on. It's, you know, it's crazy. I mean, you can listen to Charles Stanley, you can listen to David Jeremiah, you can listen to Ed Young and guys like that that are great. And then you can listen to other people. And there's, there's some that I, I wouldn't recommend that you listen to, okay? If I'm, being, if I'm just being frank with you. It's not new. Here's my point. It's not new. That's been going on since Paul. <laughs> Paul's locked up and he goes, look, I know people are out there preaching Jesus just because they, they want to get something from it. Preachers that today make millions of dollars and they own multiple private jets and mansions. There was one guy that I was reading about who uh, he, he, ha he owns, I think, five jets and his mansion in, like, has a, a little, his own private airport with a tarmac right next to his house. And like, how does one guy need five jets? <laughs> I'm tired of this one. I'm going to go with the other one. Like, he names them too, I bet. But um, when I hear about that, when I think about that, I wonder if they've forgotten that Jesus said that it's easier for the camel, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. And I don't think they have forgotten. I don't think they've forgotten. I think they just, they look at it differently. To explain that, I... I was reading an article um, earlier. There is actually, it came out in April of this year in Financial Times. Now, if you don't know Financial Times, it's one of the three most um, influential newspapers in the country. And um, the editor for Financial Times wrote a piece on Joel Osteen and the prosperity gospel. And for those of you that don't know what the prosperity gospel is, uh, we're talking about this because Paul noticed that people are preaching out, out of a desire for selfish gain. The prosperity gospel is a lie that says God rewards faith with wealth and success 
Worldly success, therefore, whether financially or otherwise, is the chief blessing that God gives to his people. So the preachers who preach this prosperity gospel, they're not afraid to live in luxury because it's evidence to them that they're doing God's work. Does that make sense? So if I'm following God appropriately, I, he will give me money and he will give me uh, power and he will make me successful. And so if I'm, if I'm a preacher who preaches that and I have a lot of money, I'm not afraid of that. That's actually just proof that I'm right. You know what I mean? So they're not afraid of that. The article notes, therefore, that uh, Joel Osteen's fortune is estimated at $60 million. His mansion is listed on Zillow right now for $10.7 million. His suburban uh, house in Houston has three elevators, a swimming pool, and parking for 20 cars. To be clear, wealth is not a sin. Wealth is not a sin. What you do with it could be a sin, but it's like anything else. It's a resource. I'm sure that there are pastors or preachers out there who on a smaller scale preach for selfish gain and out of selfish ambition um, or for power or prestige, but just less successfully. Do you know what I mean? Am I gonna be mad at Joel Osteen for being really successful at preaching for selfish gain while I'm not mad at this other guy who just isn't very good at it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The, you have to look... You, you have to ask about your heart, like where your heart is about that. Now, I can't look at someone else's heart and tell what they're, what they're doing, but I can look at someone's mansion and their private jets, and I can ask, you know, are, is that the way that, that Jesus wants us to utilize our resources? Or are you like the, the rich farmer who got even richer and decided, instead of helping people, I'm gonna build a bigger silo? and he just built a bigger barn. And the point of that parable is don't be that guy. So that's just a question that, that we have to ask. But the fact is, is you, cannot, you and I can look into the world and we can see that Christ is preached out of selfish ambition today. That's the point. It's ha it happened a long time ago and it's been happening ever since then. What's particularly off-putting about the prosperity gospel is that it doesn't, yeah, people get rich from it, okay. But what really bothers me is that the prosperity gospel doesn't feature repentance, sin, or forgiveness. And I object to that more than how rich people get. Here's a, here's a quote from the, uh, the, an interview that was in the article. This is, uh, and I quote, how did he manage to keep sin and redemption out of a Christian message, I asked. Look, I'm a preacher's son, so I'm an optimist, Osteen said after a pause. Life already makes us feel guilty every day. If you keep laying shame on people, they get turned off. But how does telling people to downplay their consciences tally with the Old Testament. Osteen smiled awkwardly. I preach the gospel, but we're non-denominational, he replied. It's not my aim to dwell on technicalities. I want to help people sleep at night. End quote. Okay, now that bugs me. Because I don't think sin is a technicality. 
The prosperity gospel isn't the good news that we find Jesus preaching. It's not the good news that we find Peter preaching or Paul preaching. So what do we make of it? What do we, wh- how should we think about these things? Well, what does the Bible say? Let's go back to the passage. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. They'll do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18 says, so what? That's what that means. What then? Paul says, yeah, people are preaching Jesus out of selfish ambition. And in fact, they're preaching because they're trying to hurt me, take advantage of the fact that I'm in prison. And Paul says, who cares? So what? The only thing that matters to me is that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Whether it's genuine or it's an act, whether it's true in your heart or it's not, we should rejoice that Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And so my second observation from the passage is that if people are talking about Jesus, we should probably be happy. We should probably be happy. Now understand that doesn't mean we should be satisfied. That doesn't mean that we can take a break If anything, it should make us mobilize because if people are preaching an incomplete gospel, it's a fake gospel. And then it's our responsibility to come in behind that and share what's really good news. The idea is if you believe what you got told by these people who were telling you that God wants you to be rich, if you believed that, you're going to love the actual good news. The actual good news is really good news. And it's Jesus wants to forgive you. Not that he wants to give you more of the stuff that your flesh wants, but he wants to give you something that satisfies your soul. That is really good news. In Galatians chapter one, this is another of Paul's letters. Verse eight says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you already, let them be under God's curse. Now, let me, let me be clear. That's God's job. Not let them be under our curse. That's God's job. But for us, we don't stay there. And honestly, that's where I go wrong sometimes. For me, I want to stand up. I don't want to start hollering about, about what's not true about the prosperity gospel and what's, uh, and that, the, you know, selfish ambition and gain. And I, 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 wanna, I, I, want, I want to park there and I want to live there. When someone walks up to me on a Sunday morning and says, I'm sorry, I missed church last week, um, but I caught Joel Osteen's program. He's really good. Honestly, like I, I feel like I almost need to physically hold my tongue to stop from saying something But that's me. That's on me. Because you know what? Three of the largest four churches in America preach the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is the only brand 
of Christian church that is numerically growing in the world today. Part, part of that is very frustrating, but I bet God is genuinely reaching hearts through a disingenuous presentation of an incomplete gospel because he does crazier stuff than that. So am I mad about the prosperity gospel? Well, I think if we think about it like Paul, if we think about it in terms of that as long as Jesus is being proclaimed, as long as his name is getting out there and people are talking about Jesus, on the one hand, I bet that somebody is hearing that and is going to go look for something deeper. And they'll find the real Jesus. They'll find the real gospel. So in, in that sense, I would go, that's God working out his will in the world. Amen? On, on the other end, I can, I, can, I can rejoice that people are hearing about Jesus knowing that if that is tilling the soil, because that's not the seed that I care about. If that tills their soil though and prepares their heart, that we need to come in and plant a seed. And maybe Jesus is using the prosperity gospel to till the soil in the world so that, so that the the true believers, the people with the real gospel can come in behind it and can say, here's what Jesus actually said about himself. Here's what the gospel really is. Here's what good news really looks like. So I'm not trying to beat up the people who, who preach the prosperity gospel. And that's a big shift for me. Believe me, that for me, that's a big shift. Because this week when I was uh, praying about this and I was reading about all of this, and I was studying the passage, I realized that um, I take pride in what I do. As a pastor, I take, I take pride in what I do. I want to be a successful pastor. Does that make sense? I don't think I want to preach in a stadium like Joel does, but I want to reach a stadium full of people uh, I want to have the resources to do ministry like that. And so I have to be careful that I'm not preaching out of envy or rivalry. Does that make sense? So that's, that's just, I'm sharing with you something that, that God laid on my heart, that I need to be preaching out of only, only, only a love for Jesus and obedience to his calling. And that's the same for all of us. We can't operate in the world based on what other people are like and what other people have and, and things like that. We have to be operating in the world just purely based on a love and obedience for Christ. That's it. And when, when bad people get good things, we're able to say, ah, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. I'm not locked in to the, the blessings of this world because I know that all my hope is in heaven. That's where we have to live. And so I, we can't get bogged down in the rest of it. There's a lesson for all of us here. And it's that when we make life about us, when we, when we, when we make it about, about what we're going through and, and, and what we want, we fail to see that life is really about Jesus. Paul's sitting there in prison 
saying, I know there's a bunch of people out there making a mockery of the gospel and they're doing it for their own gain, but all I care about is that people are hearing about Jesus and I wanna have the same attitude. I don't wanna be mad about everything that's happening on TV Sunday morning. I wanna have the attitude that says, guys, as long as people are hearing about Jesus, I'm, I'm happy. I'm not satisfied. I wanna come in behind it and make sure they understand the gospel and they're growing in Christ but I'm not mad about it. The lesson is that your ambition, what you're striving for, what you want in the world, what matters the most to you, the thing that drives you, your ambition, it can be pointed at you or at Jesus, but it can't be pointed at both. In any given situation, You can be ambitious for what you want, or you can be ambitious for what Jesus wants, but you cannot be ambitious for what you want and what Jesus wants. You have to choose in every given situation, am I going to chase after what's good for Jesus, or am I gonna chase what's after after what's good for me? At home, with your relationships, in church, at work, in politics, at the grocery store, on the phone, wherever you are, whatever's happening, in every situation, you're making a choice. Am I ambitious for myself or am I chasing after what's good for Jesus? Anytime you look out for number one, you take Jesus' spot. And going back to Romans 6, which I, I, I brought up in the beginning, To put it bluntly, if you're driven by what you want, you're a slave to sin. Unless the one thing that you want is Jesus. And that makes you a slave to righteousness. Now that's easy to say. That is hard to live. Because we never get all the way there where we are completely and fully slaves to righteousness. We never get to the point until we get to heaven, we see Jesus face to face where we are not conflicted. We're always conflicted and we're gonna make mistakes. We have to realize that God's goal, however, is not our comfort, it's our growth in faith and in holiness because that's what glorifies him. So let me ask you this as we wrap up something to think about. How are the obstacles in your life? You know, the things that that stop life from being smooth sailing, all the little bumps and the hiccups. How are those obstacles in your life going to help you grow in faith and grow in holiness? Just think about one thing that you're going through in your life. One thing that stops life from being smooth. Just think about one thing right now. How does God want you to grow in your faith or to grow in holiness through that obstacle? How does he want you to encounter that and to get over it in a way that grows your faith and that grows your holiness? And that's the question that we need to ask every time. Every time something comes up in our lives, every time things get messy, we ask, God, how do I honor you right now? For Paul, it was sitting in a prison 
looking at all this giant obstacle in his life and he's saying, and he's writing a letter and he's saying, look, for me, I'm just happy that people are hearing about Jesus. I know they're not gonna keep me forever and I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna share the, the true gospel to people who, have, who are already hearing something. And for me, this prison, man, it's only been good for Jesus. It's only been good for Jesus. How does God want you to, to do that with your own obstacles? Take a minute, think about that. Maybe it's, maybe it's your health or maybe it's a big decision you've got coming up. Ask, how is, how is that gonna help me grow in faith and holiness? Because God's desire is for us to stop being self-ambitious, but to be ambitious for Christ. Amen? Let's pray.